0: Well, good evening. My name is Betty. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Betty. Through the grace of a loving God and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have not found it necessary to have a drink of alcohol or a mind-altering substance. I used to say February 14, 1492, because that's how long everybody was sober where I sobered up. <laughs> but it was December 18, 1983. And thanks. That's just amazing to me and my family is very, very grateful. <laughs> um, I'm really happy to be here. I met Vicky and Liz in Nashville and we had a great time. And um and I liked you too from the very beginning but <laughs> You know, it's just so easy to like people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Today, it wasn't always. I just did not like you when I first got here. And um, and that's understandable because I just didn't understand a word you were saying. You were talking about love and kindness and all that stuff, and I was just mean as a snake, you know. But um, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, and that is some place to drink in. Actually, it's real hard to tell the alcoholics from the normal drinkers in New Orleans. <laughs> they all drink the same. And I I had to leave New Orleans to find out I was an alcoholic, you know. Um, they have wonderful, wonderful AA in New Orleans, and there's a conference in May, I think, it, every year called the Deep South con- um conference and it's really wonderful. And the first one I went to in sobriety, I had a sponsor who dragged me to Conferences, whether I wanted to go or not, and um, and that was really special for me because I didn't know there were so many of us for one thing, and I didn't know that some of us were articulate and could talk about those things (laughs) that we had done. (laughs) I wasn't I wasn't talking at that time. I was too. It was too. I was too new for for that kind of talking. But um, I always give. This little thing for my family when I, when I talk, you know, I had, I came from a really good, warm, loving family, uh, who spent all of their time, all of their energy, all of their money trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And I can remember that my mom took me to the family doctor one time and, um, she said to him, this is our eldest, Betty. She's moody and high strung.
1: <laughs>
0: Could you give her something?
1: <laughs> and he did.
0: And, uh, maybe some of you are old enough to remember Milltown. That was the first tranquilizer, you know, and that's really not what I wanted. <laughs> and I just didn't like that kind of feeling, so I didn't get hooked on that kind of stuff. But when I sobered up, I went to, uh, to the courthouse one day and I walked, <coughs> Excuse me. And then they had a big drug display. I thought about that last night at the prison. And it was for the kids, you know, to, uh, whatever that just say no as if. You could do that if you have a... <laughs> it's my favorite. Just say no. <laughs> well, some of us can't, you know. <laughs> It's like those people in AA who say, just don't drink. Well, hell, if I could have just don't drink, I wouldn't have had to come here, yes? (laughs) But I looked in that display, and with the exception of LSD, I had taken everything that was in there. (laughs) And never had to buy any of it on the street. Got it from doctors for the most part. But none of that really... I could I could not do some of that stuff. I just couldn't not do alcohol. And I didn't discover it right away. But I suffered terribly from the disease of dissatisfaction. You know, no matter what my family did, no matter what it was, on a Mardi Gras day in New Orleans, my family started out at 7 o'clock in the morning to see the Zulu parade. And we didn't come home until 7 o'clock in the evening. And as we were walking home, I said to my grandfather, where are we going? And he said, we're going home. It's over. And I said, it's over? (laughs) You know, when did it start? (laughs) Years later, I heard a song by Peggy Lee, and she the song was, Is That All There Is? (laughs) I identified with that song, and it was long before I knew. That I was an alcoholic but that feeling of dissatisfaction that no matter what was offered to me in life it just wasn't enough and when I was 13 years old I got a drink of alcohol actually I took six
1: <laughs> everybody else took one
0: I took six but I took six because when I swallowed the first one This feeling came over me that kind of brought the whole world into focus. And everything was okay, and it was like I had the key to living. I could walk, I could talk, I could do all of those things that I had trouble doing. And, you know, even if I didn't, it wouldn't have mattered because I just didn't care. Once I had the alcohol, I just didn't care. I did not know you could just keep drinking that stuff at any time. I thought you had to party. You had to go to a party. You had to find somebody who had it, and they had to give it to you. And even though I got sick, I remember thinking, there must be a way to do this. And I never forgot it. And next time alcohol came up in my life, I grabbed it. And uh I didn't come from a drinking family. And not that generation, my mom's generation, but... Because my grandparents had been, were alcoholics. And so my mom and her sisters didn't drink. They were crazy. (laughs) You know? And we are all, we all have that same craziness. And it's, it's that thing about you need to drink and you don't drink. And so I'm really glad that I found alcohol. Because I don't see it as the enemy that some people see it as. Alcohol worked for me. It kept me from blowing my brains out, and it kept me from being t- taken away in a straitjacket. Uh, I have a friend who said uh it allowed him to live with the imperfection that he found in himself and in others. And that's what it did for me, you know. It was the solution to the problem. I just didn't know you could do it every day. You know, I had... um So I did other things, you know, like I got married, and I got married, and I got married. (laughs) So far, that's it. I got married, got married, got married. And I did not pick the best guys. They weren't the worst guys. And they were no different the day I got them than the day I let them go. It was the same guy. I married the same guy that I divorced. What changed was I got tired of trying to to change them. Or well, I had sucked the life out of them. You know, and there was nothing left. They were a hollow shell. Yeah. But I didn't have a good picker. And the reason is because I'm a recovering princess today. And this is how... An alcoholic princess looks for a man. And this is the way men look for women, too. So don't just think you're sitting there going to get out, you know, skip out. You do the same things. I'm looking for a prince. I think I deserve a prince. And I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking and no prince has come along. And I'm getting tired of looking and I ain't really long on patience. And one day this duck walks across my path. (laughs) And I think, looks like a prince to me. Could be a prince. I pick him up, I put a crown on his head, and I make a prince out of that duck. In about a week and a half... (laughs) the prince starts quacking.
1: <laughs> and I don't get it. How come that prince is
0: quacking? Because I forgot he was a duck.
1: You
0: know? And there are female ducks out there who get picked up by you guys every day. I know that. In fact, some of my husbands may have thought that's what they did. I don't know. You know, it, the moral of the story is if it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks if it's a duck don't pick it up (laughs) I had to make amends to all those
1: ducks
0: (laughs) the first guy only lasted three months (laughs) I'm not a patient woman (laughs) I knew I had made a mistake he expected someone to cook and I knew it wasn't me You know, and I looked at my watch and if I, I hurried and got the annulment, I could get back to school for the next semester. <laughs> I called my grandfather and I said, I think I made a mistake. He said, we know you did. Come on home and I'll take care of it. And that's the kind of family I had. They were good, wonderful people, you know, and living amends to my family is that, you know, you can really love one of us to death. And they almost did that to me. I, um, I had to go to work at some point in my life, I couldn't go to school forever, and all of my sisters were married, they all had children, and there was another duck. And so I married him. I didn't even like him. But I had to get married because my sisters were married and they all had kids and my family really expected me to get married. and. well, I'll tell you the absolute truth. The absolute truth was that I was going to have to sign a contract to teach for a whole year. And I thought, if I married him, I won't have to.
1: <laughs>
0: now, I didn't admit that to myself until way later in life. You know, that that's really what the motivation was behind marrying the second guy. And then I was stuck with him. I had to stay married to him. I didn't want my family to think I had poor taste in men.
1: Poor judgment
0: you know, but I lied to myself over and over and over again and what I said was let me get my glasses if I ever get rid of this sucker my life will be good if I ever get rid of him I will be able to do all the things that I ever wanted to do if I ever, ever am able to get rid of him I will be the wonderful person that I thought I could be I don't know why I didn't think I could do it with him there, but that was my excuse and then i did you know I did lots of wonderful things in my life and I did lots of all for the wrong reasons, but I did some really good things in my life and when after I was sober and i I had a sponsor who would always say. What's your motivation? Question your
1: motives. (laughs)
0: Question your motives. I started looking at my motives for some other things in life. And what I found was, and this is really sick, and I could only tell it to a room full of recovering people. This is the only place I could say this without people going, there's something wrong with that woman. (laughs) No matter what I did, no matter how good it was, I did it with this motivation. That one day I would be walking down the street, and I would pass people, and they would say, There goes Betty. Isn't she wonderful?
1: (laughs) Everything
0: in the supermarket, you know. That's Betty. Isn't she wonderful? (laughs) So you can do all the right things, I learned. And if you have the wrong motivation, you could die from that. You know. So I was president of PTA, and I, I continued to teach. I taught part-time. I didn't want anything. I didn't want to be tied down to anything. I was married and had two kids, but I didn't want to be tied down to anything. And my kids would get in, in high school and I thought, oh, now I can get rid of this guy. And so I did. I got rid of him. Two years after he was gone, I was still saying, if I ever get rid of that guy, my life will be good. And one day I heard that. And that was a turning point in my life. I went home that day, and I mixed up a blender full of margaritas, and I needed to do that every single night so that I wouldn't think about this wonderful life that I was supposed to be having. And so I drank more, and I drank more, and I drank more. And I met another guy. Now this guy, I didn't like him. I never bothered to get to know him. You know, maybe I would have liked him if I got to know him. Okay. (laughs) I see you. (laughs) That's what I do. Oh. (laughs) But he had... Everything that I wanted in a man. He could afford to buy what I wanted to drink. (laughs) Based on that, I began a relationship with this man. I talked him into moving away from New Orleans because I had been fired from the Greater New Orleans Tourist Commission Tourist and Convention Commission. Every business, every business, whether it was tourist-related or not, belonged to that outfit. I was virtually unemployable in New Orleans because I just didn't show up for work for a week because I was drunk. When I was drunk, I didn't care whether I called in. And when I was sober, I didn't want to. You know? And besides that, I thought when I was there, I worked really hard, and they didn't appreciate it. (laughs) I thought it was enough that I showed up at that place every day, and I graced them with my presence. Surely they should have paid me for that. They fired me. Actually, my boss gave me a choice. He said, you can resign, or you can resign. (laughs) I gracefully resigned and I talked this guy into moving 300 miles away from his job because he could be a commuter (laughs) he commuted he had to drive 85 miles to Shreveport, Louisiana and fly to New Orleans to get his trip And about six months after we were there, they cut the flight out from Shreveport to New Orleans, and then he had to fly from Shreveport to Dallas to New Orleans to go to work. (laughs) (laughs) He never really said there was anything wrong with that. He drank with me, and he ended up getting sick. I was very annoyed because I was really in bad trouble as far as my drinking was concerned if I if my eyes were open I drank. And I wanted to quit. And I tried to quit. And I would you know, like a week into not drinking, I didn't know anything about the obsession of the mind, but I had it. Every minute of every hour of every day that I wasn't drinking, my brain was screaming at me, You are not drinking And I thought, I can't live. Like this. Now I could live falling down drunk, and I had learned that you could drink in the morning. So when I opened my eyes, I immediately had a drink, I felt better, and I went on and on and on. In August of the year that I sobered up, my mother became ill. And, uh, it was really the lowest point in my drinking. And she was at a hospital in, uh, In Mobile, Alabama, and I was in Manny, Louisiana. And every day I tried to straighten up to go and see my mother. We knew she was dying. And every day, it was the alcoholic dilemma. In order to get ready to go, I had to have a drink. You know, I, I I could, I would, I drank in the shower. That's how bad I was at that point. As soon as I had the drink, I had to have another drink. And so I'd straighten up just so much, and then I'd be too drunk to get to Shreveport to get on a plane. And then after a month or so of that, she died. I did the same thing with my mother's funeral. My poor family held my mother's body for five days while they waited for me, and I tried every day. I knew that that was as bad as I could get, but I didn't stop drinking. How I stopped was absolute fear of the world. My boyfriend who could afford to buy what I wanted to drink got sick. He started to get sick from his drinking. <coughs> I had stopped driving. I couldn't drive anymore. I had those, that fear, that awful fear. Toward the end, if something moved on the side of me, I jumped a foot off the, off the ground. And as we drove 85 miles to Shreveport to let him go to the hospital, he asked me very kindly if I needed to stop and buy a bottle, and I was insulted.
1: <laughs>
0: How dare he? And I said no. At four o'clock that morning, I could have killed him. (laughs) Not me, I wouldn't have killed myself, but he should have known that I needed a bottle. But I was so delusional in that, sitting in that waiting room. I was too afraid to walk out of the doors of that hospital. I was afraid to look for a liquor store. I was afraid to look for a bar. I cowered in a corner. And finally, it was a blessing some people from his professional organization came to do an intervention on him and they sent me to (laughs) Al-Anon. They sent this woman with them that I would not have talked to on a good day. (laughs) But I was so hypocritical and I was so alcoholic. I said to her, I will do anything to help him.
1: (laughs) Anything.
0: So I went to that Al Anon meeting, and in that Al Anon meeting, I did not like it.
1: <laughs> I
0: couldn't identify with those women. But I could identify with the people they were talking about.
1: <laughs> They're
0: alcoholic. And the other woman. I love that, the other woman. One woman said, the other woman and I'm sitting in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I'm thinking to myself, it's only 90 miles from New Orleans. I could be the other woman. I wish I knew what her last name was.
1: I, <laughs>
0: before I spill my guts in here, I'm finding out that last name.
1: <laughs>
0: so I went to a, I went to a chemical dependency counselor. I was stalling for time, you know, and I thought, oh, I'll go to, this And brilliant, I forgot to tell you how brilliant I am, you know. But I'll go to that chemical dependency counselor, and I'll get her to give me a letter that says this woman is not an alcoholic. She can have an occasional drink. I have never had an occasional drink in my life. Even before I had problems with alcohol, I didn't drink occasionally. I got drunk every single time I drank. Every single time I drank, I always wanted another drink. It was like a button. Give me a drink, push that button, give me another drink, give me another drink. I always drank that way from the very first drink. And this woman, oh, and I went to the library to study up on alcoholism because I wanted to be able to discuss it. (laughs) What I found was that the chief symptom of alcoholism is denial. So I told her I may be an alcoholic. Just so she wouldn't think I was denying anything. <laughs> now here's what she did for me. I mean, I'm not against counseling and all that stuff. I think you should try to do the steps first. If you get to the 12th step and you still need a counselor, man, go. <laughs> you know, but don't waste your money till you finish the steps. At least that's what they told me and that worked. But anyway, she said, um, "Well, I told this, and then this is how brilliant I was." She said, "Well, you could take the acid test," and went, "I am really screwed." They have some acid that they put in your blood. You know, you give them a blood sample. They put this little acid in there, and they can find out whether you're an alcoholic or not. I ain't giving my blood. <laughs> What she, what her acid test was? You say what you think normal drinking is, and then you do that every day, you know. And so, what was I going to say? A quart of scotch (laughs) and as much beer as I need until I get to like the three o'clock mark, so I can start drinking the scotch. I can't tell her that. Made me sign that check, fifty dollars. That. For an hour, every day. And that's what she did that saved my life. Because after two weeks, I couldn't talk to myself about how brilliant I was. Because after all, I was signing the checks, and she was cashing them. That ain't brilliant. (laughs) So I made the big decision to tell the truth. And maybe even have to take that acid test. And I went and I told her, you know, I drink every day and I drink a quart of scotch every day. I wasn't drinking that much then. I was just drinking like a two liter of wine and a screw top because I never could really get that wine quart thing going. You know? <laughs> so I got—I like that Gallo-Chablis. I mean, I could drink that stuff. Sometimes I'd have to put a shot of scotch in it just to get enough. Of <laughs> I'd, I'd just kind of walk around with that fancy glass, you know, and I'd have a shot of scotch in there.
1: <laughs>
0: she said to me, Well, that's, you don't have to come here anymore because once you admit that, uh, you will find the answer to your problem in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went,
1: No! Uh uh-uh. uh! <laughs>
0: Can't you give me a shot or, you know, anything? You're going to make me go to those meetings with those derelicts?
1: <laughs>
0: and then back Louisiana, I call central office. They send me to a place, and the name of the group is the Chapter 5 group. I don't know if you know what Chapter 5 group is. <laughs> but I go down in this church basement, and I'm dressed like this, you know. I'm looking good, I want to be the best looking drunk there. And all I can see is black in that room, and stuff shining, glints of silver. Well, it's the biker group, chapter five. You know? I don't mean doctor and lawyer bikers, no. I mean those guys who have tattoos in places you didn't know they could write on.
1: That. They were so
0: nice to me. I just couldn't believe how nice they were. And I still wanted to help him, and I didn't think I could be sober, but I was going to try. And so I go up to Manny, Louisiana. He gets out of treatment. He's sober two weeks longer than I am. I, I eventually married him. I just didn't want to try to break another one in. <laughs> he's over two weeks longer than me and it's the longest two weeks of my life but we go back up there to Manny, louisiana and i walk in to the harbor group i called them the group from hell for a lot of years and they have about six people sitting in there and they have hay seeds in their teeth and they have overalls and uh White socks. They never wore anything except white socks, you know. And I'm brilliant, and I'm educated, and I'm beautiful, and I got money, and I got all of these things, you know. And it don't mean dilly squat with that group. They are not impressed by me. There's one big old gal, Ella. Her name is Ella. Ella Ruth. And she's about six foot two, and she is tough looking. Actually, she was tough. At this point, she was a lady. I mean, she was married to the mayor of that town, but she was a woman, and her idea of a really good time was to go to one of those oil field bars in South Louisiana, pick out the meanest, biggest, roughneck she could find pick a fight with that guy and beat the hell out of (laughs) me. And she was like, they just loved her. I could not see a thing in that woman. (laughs) They sneered at me and they just bowed to her. And I'd go home every night from that meeting and I'd tell my husband, I hate that woman. Who does she think she is? Miss a. a. She told the same damn story every time she talked. And I'd say to my husband, if she tells that U-Haul story, she had this U-Haul story. Uh, she'd get this feeling that she had to go someplace else. She'd be in Texas and she'd think she'd have to go to Nashville. And she'd back a U-Haul up to her apartment and what fit in it she'd take and what didn't fit in it stayed there. Years later, I told her about that, and she said, I only got one story, and I ain't changing it for nobody.
1: <laughs>
0: and I tried to hurt their feelings, and I tried to be ugly to them, but they just didn't care. They couldn't have cared less. And uh, they'd come to me and ask me if I'd want to go to a women's meeting, and I'd say, no. You know? I told one woman, I honestly said this to a woman, I said a few things in the beginning of sobriety that I just can't believe today. You know, one of the, I did, I told this one woman, all she said was, how are you doing? And I said, it's none of your business. I did not come here to socialize with the likes of you. She said, keep coming back, honey, it gets better they asked me if we would do the coffee for this big fish fry they had I actually said this to a man I didn't want to do it but I knew, I, I knew what you could do and not do in Alcoholics Now was from the very beginning but I said to him we will do it and we will do a better job than had ever been done before
1: <laughs>
0: and he said I'm sure you will keep coming back honey it gets better <laughs> And I went on like that for about three months, and the only reason I didn't drink was because he wasn't drinking. And I was not going to be the first of us to take a drink. And I just love that about God. God just uses whatever God has, and all God had in me was pride and ego. And so I got to sober up with this guy who, you know, was by-the-book guy, and I just got carried along by that because of my pride and ego. But at almost three months sober, and also I would have bought a year's sobriety if they would have sold it to me. <laughs> I would have bought it, because those people with that, My name is Lou Bell, through the grace of God, and 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to have a drink since February fourteenth,
1: 1492. <laughs> And
0: for that, I am grateful.
1: <laughs>
0: they were giants, giants, those women. The blessing for me and Alcoholics Anonymous in that in that group was that when I asked a question, I got the same answer from every person. There was no BS, because I would have gone for that right away. And if I had sobered up in a place like, five years sober, I went to live in Salt Lake City. And they were really into um, psychiatry and all of that. And I would have died there, I know it. So, you know, I was in the place where I could sober up. And uh, I'd talk to this ugly woman, Ella. (laughs) I'd even go see her every day. When I feel scared, you know. She worked for a husband downtown. And uh I'd go in there and talk to her. Down my nose. But I needed her. And uh one day I was standing in my kitchen. And I was just so tired of being the way I was. And I didn't know how to be any different. And I didn't believe in anything. Not God. I was praying though. I was praying to Ed's God. Ed was a guy in my group who was sober 18 years and he wasn't afraid of his higher power. And they told me, act as if. I didn't know what that meant either, but I didn't care, I was desperate. And so I'd get on my knees and I'd say, Ed's God, please help me. (laughs) I don't believe in you, but Ed
1: does.
0: (laughs) And he hasn't had a drink in 18 years.
1: So if you could just
0: help me, I would be very grateful. And uh I guess Ed Scott got tired of me and wanted me to find somebody for myself. But at the end of that three months, I'm standing in the kitchen, and I had been doing that kind of prayer and saying, thanks, Ed Scott, at night. And I started to cry. I just didn't want to be that way anymore. You know, it was true. I had more than all of those people had. There was just this one little problem. They were happy. I was miserable. And I didn't want to be miserable anymore. And that guy I'm married to, I mean, he, I wasn't married to him yet. He's just happy as a clam. They're talking all that stuff, that AA stuff, and he's going, yeah, he's getting it. (laughs) He even has a key to the place. (laughs) He gets there 30 minutes early. The answer to my prayer was just to go to the meeting, sit in the back of the room, and when it was over, ask that big, ugly woman to help me. And she said she would. And I said, you don't have to bother with the first step. I think I've done it. She goes, your life is manageable? I said, yeah, it is. She said, we best read the book together. And you take the action as it comes up. And when you stop taking the action, we'll stop working together. And I never stopped taking the action. And then she gave me advice, but she only gave it to me once. I could tell her what my problem was once. If I called her again with the same problem, she would say, Honey, I know the problem. And I gave you the answer. Now tell me about the solution. Well, I didn't have any answer for it because I hadn't done the damn thing.
1: <laughs>
0: and so I learned that I had to do what she told me to do in order to call her and bitch some more, you know.
1: <laughs> but sometimes
0: I'd go to call her and I'd reach for the phone and I'd go, Oh, I know what she's going to say. And I'd just do it. Um, I like it. I like this whole group of women because we had that. We had a group of people who supported themselves. Of course, I hated everybody. And I would go to Ella and I'd say, I hate Edna. She goes, well, Edna's just a fine lady. What is it that you hate about Edna? I said, she's 65 years old and she thinks she's so cute and she's so spoiled. She said, do you think it's any cuter at 47? I called her one day. I was crazy because my husband was in a a property dispute with his ex-wife about a piece of property that didn't belong to me. But I was afraid I might lose it. I didn't want it. I didn't want it. So I called Ella. I like that. We're always afraid we're going to lose something we never had to begin with. and I said, I told him my whole big problem. And she asked me a question. She said, you got any old people in your neighborhood? <laughs> yes. But you don't understand. We might lose this piece of prop. She said, you got any vegetables in your refrigerator? Ella, look, you have to concentrate on what I'm saying. <laughs> this is not about old people and vegetables.
1: <laughs>
0: she said, oh, hell, honey, just... Make a nice pot of vegetable soup and take it over to them old people.
1: <laughs> I did it
0: because then I could never talk to her about it again if I didn't do it. I had to do it to prove she was wrong, and also I cursed her the whole time. That's stupid. She also cleaned up my mouth. There was a. And what I found at the end of the day was, it's true that I called Ella some really ugly names. But I didn't think any more about that other stuff. I told her once I didn't believe in God. She said, hell, there's a 50-50 chance.
1: <laughs>
0: ain't nobody proved there is. Ain't nobody proved that ain't.
1: <laughs>
0: Why don't you just take the 50% that'll do you some good? <laughs> I did. It made perfect sense to me. Why choose the other way? So I gave Ed Scott up and I started to try to invent one for myself. She was a wonderful woman. She died when I was six and a half years sober and she really loved me. And for years I thought it was because I was lovable. <laughs> it was because she was a loving person. I mean that's Alcoholics Anonymous. Um when I was five years sober, I was ready to... Uh, my husband wanted to transfer to... We had built a house in Montana, and he wanted to transfer to Utah so that we could go back and forth and use the house more in in, in Montana. And I just... I didn't want to go. I, five years, I did not want to leave my place. I was the baby in my group. Two other guys had come in, had sobered up, and so I didn't have to wash the ashtrays anymore and I wasn't putting up the chairs. But I had to do that for three years until some other people came who who would stay. And she was very encouraging to me. She looked at me when I said, I'm a little afraid. And she said, you're a sober woman. You can go any place you want to go, do anything you want to do. Alcoholics Anonymous is in Utah. Just don't carry this place on your back. Go and accept whatever they have. You know, and I did what she told me to do because at that point, whether I wanted to do it or not, I did it. You know, it's like I do everything today whether I want to do it or not. It's like telling the truth. I don't want to tell the truth. I want you to think I'm wonderful. (laughs) The truth would disprove that a lot of
1: times.
0: (laughs) You know, but I don't like, I don't ever want to feel the way I felt before. And so I do the things that I have to do. I um I went to Utah and when I got to Utah that was a dangerous time for me because at five years I was one of the oldest sober women in meetings. They have a problem with uh people with a lot of sobriety continue to go to the meetings and uh and I became a guru in like three and a half minutes. <laughs> Everything that I ever learned in Alcoholics Anonymous just went out the door and I went for it, you know.
1: <laughs> I sponsored
0: every woman in Salt Lake City for at least an hour and a half, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: and it, it never occurred to me to sponsor the, the way that I had been sponsored. I mean, I was really, but Ella was still alive then and I'd go and I'd tell her what I was doing and she'd say, you're going to die. You can't do that, you know. And um, she finally got she she had um, lymphoma, and and she died when I was six and a half years sober. And I went to see her oh, a couple of weeks before she died, and she was in the hospital. And she never talked about herself. I mean, she talked about how things were in Salt Lake City, and she talked about the people who were in our group, and she talked about how wonderful the Al Anons in our group had been. Uh, they had made a list and, and, and they went and sat with Ella every hour. And I left the hospital and I hadn't learned a thing, you know, I cried and carried on because I was losing Ella. But halfway through my ride to Alexandria, I thought, you know, if, if the roles were reversed and Ella was the person who was taking loss, what she would be doing was be thanking God for the six and a half years that she had had me in her life. And I decided that I would do that. Um Ella Sobriety Lives. You know, there are people who talk about Ella C who've never met her. but That's how influential she was in my life. She was, she was a wonderful, wonderful person. But I found wonderful people and in Salt Lake City, too. And I found wonderful people in Lincoln. And what I learned to do, and I was also really afraid that I couldn't stay married to that man that I finally married when I was two years sober. And he was two years and two weeks sober. (laughs) You know, and Ella taught me how to have that relationship, too. You know, she taught me to base it on um, sharing the lives with one another. You know, that that was the question. Do you want to share your life with this person? And if you do, you make the commitment and you do everything within your power to negotiate everything. And and I have a wonderful relationship with my husband today. And we've negotiated some really tough things, like where we wanted to live. He's a country guy. I'm a city girl. Girl. Woman. (laughs) And, uh, Actually, we're absolute opposites in every way. I'm Southern, he's Midwestern. I'm Mediterranean, he's Scandinavian. In every way, he's a Republican, I'm a Democrat. In every single thing, we are absolute opposites, except in the really important things. Like, what's important in life? What's really important in life is trust. And I absolutely trust that he's an honest person because he's always been an honest person with me. He was a better person drunk than I was sober in the beginning. But um, (laughs) And I've been able to do some things in Alcoholics Anonymous like tell the truth about myself. You know, it's really important for me to go to meetings and tell the truth about myself. I went to meetings whenever the door was open. And I'm, I am still go to meetings whenever the door is open. And one of my pet peeves in Alcoholics Anonymous is that some people who are sober a really long time don't show up for meetings. And there are people who are sober 18 to 25 years who need sponsors. You know, and it's kind of like saying, I got mine, To hell with you. That to be a really good member of Alcoholics Anonymous to have what I want be like, oh Eddie, I know Louise, Lucille, who was over 32 years and who was sitting in the same seat every time I walked into a meeting and who was willing to talk to me, whether she felt good or she didn't feel good. There are wonderful people in Alcoholics Anonymous and I don't know where I'd be without them and so I really believe that I need to show up for everybody else in Alcoholics Anonymous, whether I feel like it or not. I'm really grateful that one of the things I was taught early was that Alcoholics Anonymous is an integral part of my life. I just start getting ready. I just I go to a meeting every day. There's a meeting. I just start getting dressed at a certain time and I go. It's one hour a day. You know, a small price to pay for 23 hours of peace. Uh, I, I went through all the steps with Ella. Um, I made amends to all those ducks. And one of those ducks was really scared of me. it, it was hard to make amends to him. He kept backing out of the door, you know. And, and I learned to do things in Alcoholics Anonymous that I really don't know how to do, you know. And the most important thing that I got was the absolute understanding That program of Alcoholics Anonymous is about reliance on a power greater than myself. And that all the steps and all the work that I do is to get me to that point where I can rely upon God. And that if I will just do that, I don't have to work out anything. I don't have to figure out how to make amends to my mother. I made amends to all of those, all of my relatives for the way I treated my mother. And there was no way to make amends to my mother. My mother was gone. A few years, in 1996, my mother-in-law at 86, her husband committed suicide and she was sick and she needed someone to take care of her. She had a daughter who was only 17 miles away, but her daughter was like me, she was drinking. And I didn't think about any of those things. It's also important to tell the truth about myself, to tell those things about me that are hard for me to tell in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to help my mother-in-law. She was in Wisconsin. And it was like a 2,000-mile trip every time I went, and I had to go every other month. And I got her in a nursing home, and I was bitter toward my sister-in-law who was only 17 miles away and couldn't show up to help me. And I couldn't get to a meeting because I couldn't leave my mother-in-law alone to go two blocks to a meeting. And I called a friend of mine one day in Salt Lake City, my friend Meg, and I said to her, I hate this woman. I am so bitter, blah, 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 about my sister-in-law. And my friend Meg said to me, Gee, Betty, it must be really hard for you since that's exactly what you did to your mother. And I had forgotten that. You know? And had I not told the truth about myself in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, Meg would have not had the information to give back to me. And I realized that while I'm being bitter, God has given me the opportunity to make amends to my mother by helping somebody else's mother. I don't know how, how you would learn that. I wouldn't have learned that on my own. I would have learned it only because my friend was willing to tell it to me. And I was willing to listen and I had been willing to tell it. One of Ella's favorite sayings was become willing. Just become willing. And that's what I've learned, really. I mean, that's the the story, that's my message that if I'm just willing, and if I just really do the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, exactly the way the short version of the first 164 pages is the last chapter in the, on page 164. You know, and every time I hear it in a meeting, every time I hear it in a big book study, no matter who's saying it, It's the voice of God. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to God and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We will be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us. As you travel the road of happy destiny, trudge the road of happy destiny. May God keep you, bless you, and keep you until then. I am really happy that I've met all of you on the road, and I thank you for listening.